It's the Code St. Luke podcast, where you'll hear interesting topics and people brought together through the Code St. Luke Public Library. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Kathy Diamond on behalf of the Eleanor London Code St. Luke Public Library, back again with a short monthly book talk. I hope that you are all well and beginning to enjoy the lovely warmer spring weather, shifting curfew regulations and all. The book that I'd like to talk about today is called The Pull of the Stars by Irish-Canadian writer Emma Donoghue, a truly fitting read for our current situation. Emma Donoghue was born in Dublin, Ireland in October 1969, the youngest of eight children of Francis and Dennis Donoghue. Her father was a well-known literary critic in Ireland. She attended Catholic convent schools in Dublin, apart from one eye-opening year, as she called it, in New York City at the age of 10. She earned a first-class honours BA in English and French from University College Dublin, and as she said, unfortunately, without learning to actually speak French. She then moved to England, where she received a PhD from the University of Cambridge. Her thesis was written on the concept of friendship between men and women in 18th century English fiction. From the age of 23, she has earned her living as a writer. And as she wrote, I have been lucky enough never to have had an honest job since I was sacked after a single summer month as a chambermaid. After years of commuting between England, Ireland and Canada, in 1998, she settled in London, Ontario, where she lives with Chris Rolston, her wife, and their son Finn and daughter Una. She says that although she works in many genres, she's best known for her fiction, which has been translated by now into over 40 languages. Some familiar titles of hers include The Wonder, Room, Frog Music, Akin, Astray, and The Sealed Letter. She also writes drama for screen, stage, and radio. Room, which she had adapted from her novel for the big screen, was her first feature film and it was shortlisted for a number of awards. She's worked on a variety of other projects, adaptations of her own and others' work of fiction and memoir, as well as original screenplays in development for film and television. She said also that she has a great love for the short story form, and her stories have been published in numerous magazines, newspapers, and journals. She's also taught creative writing at different literary festivals, and has been a writer in residence at the University of Western Ontario, as well as the University of York. She's also been a judge for the Irish Times Literary Prizes and other writers' awards for fiction. She wrote in an article written last year, July of 2020, remember when 
the, the COVID pandemic was only a few months old, she wrote this article saying, COVID-19 caught me off guard. Like a daydreaming child, a writer lives in more than one world at a time. And in early March this year, remember that was 2020, last year, I was more absorbed in two artistic bubbles than in my real life. I was switching between final rehearsals of the North American premiere of Room, her book Room, which she had adapted for stage, at the Grand Theatre in London, Ontario. That was one endeavor that she was busy with and her at her desk where she was putting finishing touches to the last draft of her novel about the great flu of 1918. She writes, I have to admit that I wasn't paying much attention to the news. On March 9th, I delivered my novel, The Pull of the Stars, which was not due to be published until spring of 2021 and felt now I could relax and enjoy the experience of having my stage production of Room and then follow it from London, Ontario, where I live, to Toronto for its upcoming run. But then, on the 11th of March, the World Health Organization declared a pandemic. And two days later, the afternoon before its opening night, room was cancelled. My publishers decided that my novel about nurse midwives and doctors battling a bizarre new strain of influenza for their pregnant patients' lives had suddenly become so timely that they wanted to publish it to bring it out, as she writes, this summer. But that was last summer in 2020. So her main lockdown task became to go through the copy editing process for the pull of the stars at top speed because it was only supposed to be coming out a year later. And she continues, my days were divided between 1918 and 2020. It's a little bit of a schizophrenic way of living, she says. The 1918 concerns, and this is because of the novel that she was that she was fixing up, how many people were wearing masks on trams in Dublin in 1918? Why were governments so obsessed with how to kiss safely through a handkerchief? And then weirdly similar or different ones in 2020 when now the period that she was writing this article. Am I scrubbing my hands in all the right positions for the full 20 seconds? How many rolls of toilet paper can I buy before that counts as hoarding? So she says, I sought out a young midwife to give me the benefit of her expertise about the many scenes of labor that I had in my novel. And I found a midwife in Hamilton and she helped me very much in fixing up the novel. And again, it had to be fixed up very quickly because it wasn't supposed to be published until a year later. She wrote, I was also lucky enough to have an American copy editor who happens to be an emergency room physician. And she helped me giving me detailed feedback, not only on the medical details, but on the psychology of frontline hospital staff during such a grueling time in any era. At one point, 
my nurse protagonist, the main character of the novel, Julia Power, having almost stepped in a pothole, muses that if she breaks her leg, at least she'll be allowed, in fact forced, to take some time off. And my copyright my copy editor slash doctor underlined this passage with a heartfelt yes. My novels, writes Emma Donahue, whether contemporary or historical, are not usually full of echoes of the time I'm writing them. This was an eerie experience, living through two pandemics at once. Okay, one is her in her fictional novel, and the other one is actually living it. I thought of the people back in 1918, wearing garlic and eating raw onions. And then I thought of what people in 2020 are doing now, trying to figure out how to fight off this novel coronavirus, something that they've never had to do, we've never had to do in our lifetimes. Government advice in 1918, which she puts in the novel, she has government advice scattered throughout, for example, was as helpful as telling the largely poor population of Ireland to lie down and rest for a fortnight at the first symptom. Very helpful information. In the public information notices that I've sprinkled throughout my novel, I tried to capture that strange mixture of misleading reassurance and confusing advice. I've always found history a comfort in a darkly rueful way, says Emma Donahue. The first book that I read during this current lockdown was Hilary Mantel's The Mirror and the Light, in which Thomas Cromwell strides busily through a Tudor London where an infection could rob you of your whole family by lunchtime. So as bad as we think we have things now, historically back a a century ago or two or three or four centuries ago, we were a lot, people were a lot worse with a lot less at their disposal. This too shall pass, writes Emma Donahue, quoting a medieval Persian proverb, although I felt like writing to her and saying, well, before the medieval Persian proverb, King David, the Jewish King David, said the exact same thing. In any case, one of the characters in her book, a woman doctor who is an actual real historical figure, her name is Dr. Kathleen Lynn, she says in the novel, the human race settles on terms with every plague it encounters in the end. And that's what Emma Donahue wrote in her essay last year. So this book, To to the Pull of the Stars, set in a Dublin hospital in the grip of the 1918 flu pandemic, Emma Donahue's 11th novel, this Pull of the Stars is her 11th novel, grimly foreshadows present-day circumstances. If in doubt, don't stir out, warn the posters affixed to street lamps. 
overwhelmed hospital staff are putting patients in makeshift beds on the floor and stores have run out of disinfectant. The pandemic here in this novel serves as a backdrop for Donahue's searing portrait of women's lives scarred by poverty and too many pregnancies in a society that proclaims she doesn't love him unless she gives him 12. The Catholic Church is also called to judgment by the author for its brutal treatment of unmarried mothers and their offspring. From these dark materials, Donahue has fashioned a tale of heroism that reads like a thriller, complete with gripping action sequences, mortal menaces, and occasional triumphs, made all the more exhilarating for their being rare and hard fought for. The hero of the story, the main character, is a 30-year-old single woman, a maternity nurse by the name of Julia Power, interesting name, striving to save the lives of the pregnant women she is taking care of. And these women, her patients, are at even greater risk than usual during labor and delivery. And remember, 1918, childbirth was a very dangerous thing. But now, on top of it, they have the flu, this woman, which is why they have been admitted to hospital, because back then most women gave birth at home with midwives, so they only went to the hospital because they were sick with the flu. And our main character, the heroine of the story, this Julia Power, has to care for them in a converted supply room barely big enough for three narrow cots. Equipment and personnel are both scarce due to the pandemic and the world war that has taken many doctors to the front. So remember, this story takes place in 1918. It actually begins October 31st, the night of October 31st, 1918. And the war is going to be over in a matter of a couple of weeks, but this the staff at this hospital doesn't know that at the time. So when Julia arrives to work on October 31st, 1918, She is saddened and upset, but not surprised to learn that one of her patients has died overnight. Flu-induced pneumonia is the immediate cause, but if she had been completing the paperwork, Julia thinks bitterly, I would have been tempted to put down, to put, worn down to the bone, mother of five at 24, an underfed daughter of underfed generations. This flu had only tipped her over. Julia has little use for the pious resignation. And I think, and here it seems to me, we have Emma Donahue, who has also little use for the pious resignation of sanctimonious night nurse, Sister Luke. Though she is grateful when the nun, her superior, grudgingly sends her some help, a desperately needed aid, 
And who is this desperately needed aid? It's a young woman who's not sure of her age. She thinks she's about 22 years old. Her name is Bridie Sweeney, and she is unqualified and uneducated, but quick to learn. And who is this Bridie Sweeney? She is an orphan who has been raised, who has been and, and is now living in the mother house with the nuns, where she has been her whole life abused and treated very, very poorly. Julia warms to her. She's funny and she's quick, this Bridie Sweeney. And the together they deal with three harrowing deliveries, which are why this book is filled, as I mentioned before, with action, with menaces, and with triumphs because of the deliveries, because of the births. So squeamish readers, I have to say here, might find Donahue's graphic accounts of childbirth, and they are quite graphic and quite detailed. Sometimes I wondered, well, and thought that perhaps they didn't have to be quite so detailed, with fatal results in two of the cases. Might some readers might find this a little bit too much, but they do serve to underscore what Emma Donahue is trying to say. For example, Julia retorts angrily when an orderly comes in and comments that women shouldn't be allowed to vote and women are just uh, have just been allowed suffrage if they're over 30 and possess property we're finding out but there's not going to be an election until the war is over so julia if she uh, if she makes it till after the war is over she will be able to vote which is she's thinking about so this orderly says to her that women shouldn't be allowed to vote because they don't pay the blood tax that soldiers do and she's furious and she looks around at all these women and especially when you think of childbirth as being such a bloody um, situation and there's a lot of blood in this story and it's the blood of the women that she says to him, look around you, she says to him, women have been pay- paying the blood tax since time began. Many novels depict the brotherhood of men at war. What Donahue does and celebrates in this novel is the sisterhood of women bringing life into the world and those who help them along this perilous journey. She does stack the deck slightly in her story by making the hospitals only capable only the only capable doctor in her story a female one. But interestingly, this female doctor character is a real, was a real historical figure, a woman by the name of Dr. Kathleen Lynn. She was an actual person. She was a member of the outlawed Sinn Féin, probably I pronounced this wrong, um, group who had been released from jail after the Easter uprising so that she could combat the flu. And that's why she sent to work in the hospital. But this Kathleen Lynn was, was an actual figure. And um, Emma Donahue in her afters, in her author's note at the end of the book, mentions this. And as she has in her previous novels, Donahue makes good use of real life fix figures for her fictional ends. 
because in addition to her crucial role in saving several patients, Dr. Lin gives the novel its central metaphor when she explains to Julia that the word influenza comes from the medieval Italian belief that the influence or influenza of the stars made people ill. So this is where the book, The Pole of the Stars, where the book gets its title. Influenza, Dr. Lin explains to Julia, comes from this medieval Italian belief. Influenza della stella, the influence of the stars. People were literally star crossed. And that meaning of star crossed and star crossed lovers takes on another meaning by the time the novel is finished. This system, not only the system of the, the, the Ireland that, that Donahue is writing about, oppresses men and boys as well as girls. And Bridie, this young woman who has come to help Julia, um, says to her that it's as if when your when when it's your time, your star gives you a yank. The two women are, and in that scene, the two women are on the hospital roof getting some fresh air after two grueling days. They have become friends, and they become very close friends. And Bridie, we find out, we have found out through the story, is one of the abused boarders at Sister Luke, who is who is Julia's superior, at the convent where Sister Luke lives. She is one of those unwanted or illegitimate children who were left there with the nuns, who were often beaten, starved, and used really as slave labor in the same repressive patriarchal system that Emma Donahue is writing about that consigns married women to endless childbearing. But as Donahue does acknowledge, I said, the system oppresses men and boys as well. Julia's brother, Tim, with whom she lives, has recently returned from the war shell-shocked and mute. He is one of the ma- he's one of the male victims of the story. The infant boy whose unwed mother died during delivery and who is judged by Sister Luke as unlikely to thrive because his kind, meaning illegitimates or bastards as the nurse as the church would call them, generally have, says Sister Luke, more than one hereditary weakness. This little boy is born with a hair lip. But the novel's focus is on the hard-won strength of its female characters, which it's, it's an Emma Donahue novel. And this is where she focuses her writing in most of her work. Focusing on Julia's fierce dedication to her patients and Bridie's cheery enjoyment of each simple pleasure that Julia never thinks of, has thought of before as a pleasure, but to Bridie, who has been raised as an orphan by the nuns, where pleasure was never a part of her vocabulary, 
She enjoys the little things such as being able to go to the bathroom by herself that Julia would never think of. And Julia learns from this cheerful young helper of hers. Their tender relationship stands at the novel's heart and adds poignant satisfaction to Julia's final face-off with Sister Luke, the representative of the Catholic Church. As anyone who has read Emma Donahue's internationally best-selling novel, Room, which was inspired by the real-life grotesque Joseph Fritzl case, will know that she is quick to draw the reader in. After only four short sentences reading this story, we can already smell the dung and blood of the Dublin streets as nurse Julia Powers cycles to work in an understaffed hospital in the city center. Donahue's prose is visceral and the sense of peril in that tiny cramped ward is compelling. The first part of the story takes place over a mere 14 hours as, as, we, as we read of the women going through labor and of the nurse and her assistant trying to help them. There is tenderness and even beauty amid the horror. Donahue, in an interesting stylistic um, device, has abandoned the use of quotation marks in the book. And you notice this as you start to read, because you realize I'm reading dialogue, but there are no quotation marks. Not that it's difficult, because there are commas and there are periods, and it's, and it's in fact, makes the book perhaps easier to read, because there's an awful lot of dialogue, and quotation marks become annoying when there's that much dialogue. But she said that the reason that she did this was that she wanted to give the dialogue a hallucinatory effect. And what it does is it certainly does conjure up the exhaustion of the main character. Where the novel falls short, I I thought, is in Donahue's weakness for melodrama. She has a way of writing sometimes that is, that is, at least I found, more dramatic than necessary. As if she takes great pains to ensure the reader should never forget about the grief and suffering that her characters are surrounded by. Poverty and flu, influenza, are not the only cause of pain, of course, because there is the First World War that is still going on. It's in its last days, but and it's the end of the four years, but it's still there. The effect of so much blood and, and literally blood and guts lessens the impact of the final tragedy of the story which feels like a wasted opportunity given that Donahue is such a capable writer. For example, she writes early on about an exhausted doctor who, quote, held on to the stethoscope around his neck with two hands as a swaying passenger on a tram might grip an overhead strap. It's this ability of Donahue's to to conjure a whole world in a short phrase that makes the book worth reading. One only wishes, perhaps, that she could have occasionally exercised a little more restraint. 
again, that's my that's my opinion. With the pull of the stars, Donahue has given us one of the first novels to come out of our current pandemic. But she's also given us, and then there have been a number of others, but she's also given us a pandemic caregiver novel, an engrossing and inadvertently topical, and I say inadvertently because remember, she wrote this book before COVID-19 appeared on the scene. I had no idea that she was going to be writing about anything contemporary. She was writing about the Spanish influenza of 1918, a historical piece of fiction. And then it became a currently, you know, a very current and topical story, especially because it's about healthcare workers inside small rooms fighting to preserve life. Thank you very much for listening. Have a good month and keep well, everyone. for listening to the Code St. Luke podcast today. We launched the podcast and telephone broadcasting service in March 2020. The idea was to get content from Parks and Recreation and the library into your homes using Zoom, telephone, and podcasts. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give it a rating and review at Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. For more information about programs at the library, visit csllibrary.org. For information about the city of Cote St. Luke, visit CoteStLuke.org. Have a great day.